Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Mean Old Line Media presents the history of being black. Welcome to another episode of the History of Being Black. I am your host, yet and again, Eunice Elliott. And as you know, here on the History of Being Black, we love to talk to thought leaders and members of academia who just have not only lived in America while being black, but have studied trends, studied the culture. And we really like to have people who can really pour into us as far as insights that we may not even realize. And we are so fortunate today to be joined by Dr. Eden Renee Hayes. She's the owner of Pluralism Solutions. LLC and is also the director of the Davis Center, which is a multicultural center at Williams College. But she has so much um, involvement and plays such a critical role in advancing the engagement of when you say complex issues, all you have to do is say race, but it goes so many different levels of identity, bias, equity, inclusion, and everything that affects any and everything in our lives. So we're going to try to talk about some of that. So thank you so much for joining us and welcome to the History of Being Black. Thanks for having me. When you are thinking and talking about, well, first of all, no, let me ask you this. In, in the fact that you have made a career in research, unconscious bias, institutionalized racism, identity crisis, equity, you've been studying this and have made a, a, a career of it. What have you thought about just this last year that everyone else is trying to have these new awakenings? Well, it's a long time coming, obviously. that that's I think that's the biggest thing. It's, it's as if like Rodney King never happened. It's as if like when Rodney King was happening, that it wasn't happening well before. For then. It's as if Jim Crow didn't happen. It's just like, hello, people. We've been around for a long time. You've like opened up your institution and said we want to diversify. And now you're getting to like, okay, wait a minute. We can't just have people. Like we have to do something within the institutions that we have in order to make it a welcoming environment. And that's the reason why we don't have enough diversity. And that's the reason why we need to pay more attention to, to what's going on. So it's definitely great that people are paying more attention now, but where, where were you before? Where were you before I was born? And, and that's the question is, is like, is it a sprint versus a marathon? You mentioned those names and like you said, you can mention 10,000 more names. It's the hot thing and then we move on and we really haven't moved anywhere. Do you think yeah. we've moved somewhere this time? I do think that people are paying more attention now, which is, is it's excellent people paying, paying more attention, definitely. Um, but when we're thinking about this, we also have to consider that so many people have been experienced Experiencing this for a really long time, that there are pioneers that have paved the way for, for me, for you, for so many others. And we have to honor exactly what they went through and honor the things that they've been, uh, that they experienced and everything. Like on Juneteenth, I sent out a message about like, look at all my privileges, you know, to, to my family members, to my best friends. I'm not so big on the Facebook front. Um, but basically, I wanted to make obvious that I, I understand what came before me, that there has progression that has been made, we still have a long way to go. And that's the difficult part is recognizing that it's not just this moment right now. It's that 
we still have hope on the horizon to do even better, to have to recognize the fact that so many different people have privileges. And instead of saying, whoa, there's privilege here, um, let's let's unpack that and let's think about that. They're recording and saying, oh, no, 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 I need to keep it as if we can't be free for all when it comes to privilege. Like no one's trying to take away your privilege. We're just trying to say we all deserve the same thing, too. And when you use the word privilege, I think about how defensive some white people get when you offer the concept of white privilege. But like you said, as black people today, we have so many privileges and so many more than our ancestors and predecessors had. So how do we balance this thing, this um, this comeback to when we do say, hey, something needs to change. And the privilege, the white privilege says, look at all these privileges you have. I mean, but it's still a problem. (laughs) It is. It is. I had to actually learn that because as a black woman, uh, very, very proud to be a black woman and one who is teaching about diversity, equity, inclusion to predominantly white students and white audiences, considering the multiple sectors that I'm in. It's not just higher ed. It's it's a superintendents at K-12 and it's also hospitals. And like there's so many different it's the film industry. Like I've, I've gotten myself into a lot of different sectors and in that I have to figure out how is it that I teach about privilege when people are looking at me and what they see is black women. And both of those are intersectional demographics that are both marginalized. I have to call out all of my other privileges to help people to understand that we're all privileged. And I'm not trying to say you're privileged and you're at fault. That's that's never the intent of what's happening. What we're trying to do is push a bit of an envelope to get people a little bit uncomfortable because in, in, in that discomfort, that's where change happens. That's where we start thinking. That's where we start growing. So that's where we also need to understand everybody has privilege. And thinking about that, that means that I have privilege too. You have privilege too. Anybody listening to this, there is privilege somewhere within your demographics where the world is more set up for you to be able to continue along with being able to be a member of that particular demographic. So that is usually what helps with trying to teach about white privilege specifically and getting more white people to recognize because then they see, oh, if this is everybody, it's not just white privilege. It's privilege of being cis, that uh, the medical community labeled me as female. And I also identify with being female. That's part of me. It's the privilege of my gender expression. I am a woman who likes to wear ties. I not, may not be wearing one right now, but I know where to buy one if I go to the store. I know that they are gendered as male, but I like to wear ties. I think they're cool and I think I look cool so I'm going to wear it. And that doesn't really affect my ideas as to who I am as a woman. I don't feel like I'm gender bending when I do it. Sometimes my students say that I am just like, bro, am I really? Or am I wearing a tie? You're wearing like when a tie. it comes to it, I'm, wear, I'm kind of just wearing a tie. Like I, I look cool and I'm going to rock it. So when it comes to that, it's it's calling out all these other privileges. Like I may not have been born middle class. I was raised by a single mother. Like so my sense of being middle class at growing up was rocky. So but now I, I have a PhD. I have a solid job. I got an LLC on the side. With having all of that, it means I am a lot more solidly middle class. That is a privilege. I am financially stable. When my daughter says, I want this, I have the choice of being able to get it to her or not. And saying like, I don't know, how was the last time you cleaned your room? <laughs> right, right. You know, or rather than saying, I'm sorry, mommy can't afford that right now. Like, 
I grew up with, we can't afford that. And now I'm just like, well, do I give it to her or do I not? Like, what do I want her to grow up with? That's where privilege lies. But when all the different ways that you mentioned privilege, um, I think right now the hot topic is white privilege. But obviously there's so many privileges, whether, as you mentioned, cis or financial privileges, socioeconomic privileges, uh, geographic privileges, educational. You know, so privilege is attached to any and everything. But weren't all those privileges still set up and determined by the white people? Who says that money is a thing? Or who says this amount of money is valued at this much? Certainly. I, it's a, a little bit of chicken and egg you know, with that. And I try to recognize the fact that this is where we are right now. But we also have to recognize that with each of these privileges, it's it's you have an additional privilege alongside the others, the the financial being cis, gender expression, um, religion, many others. Uh, if you're also white, then it adds on to your your extra privilege within there. And it is true: the the more privileges you have, the more privileges you get to enjoy. And it does it does kind of feel like maybe you know more whites got to set that up, and we can't ignore the fact that historically it's okay. Well, these are the things that are most likely demographic for our group. So this is how we're going to set things up. You know, so like an able body privilege, an easy one um, to think about where's the doorknob, you know, on, on a door. Well, you know, it's it's based on on height. So who had that average height? Who got to make the decision exactly. as to how architecture was going to work to say that this is where a doorknob should, go, should always be. You go to Home Depot, the question isn't how high do you want the doorknob? Exactly. It's which door do you want? Right. When it comes example. to yes, yes. So and it's an easy example to to think about to help to wrap ourselves to wrap our minds around the fact that there's so many privileges that we're not recognizing that are just right there for us, and that's how privilege works. Right. And the beauty of privilege is you don't have to recognize your privilege. And some privileges people tend to be more defensive. Of. You know, I think when you're Certainly. sitting in your car that you are driving that has gas in it, and someone's standing there at the traffic light with a sign, the privilege you have in that moment is obvious, but you don't feel defensive as versus you know some when you say white privilege or or even when you were just talking about all of the different things. When we're saying about the doorknob. When I think about, and I know that's one of your your areas of expertise is the internalized oppression that black people tend to have, you know, even if it's colorism, who told us and taught us and ingrained in us that our the differences in our colors makes one more beautiful or ugly or more desirable or more attractive. I feel like that's still based on Eurocentric standards. And it is because Eurocentric standards got to dictate across the entire globe <laughs> that the land. The, it's it's definitely a white skin privilege, but it is also a lighter skin privilege if you're if you're a person of color. Is that what because that got infiltrated into everybody? Like, right. The closer the texture of your hair is to a white person, then you have good hair. And yes, you know, and the the size of your nose, the size of your your butts. That you know, and it's like yes. interesting that it's within the size of your body. <laughs> all of it. It's yes, all of it. How we judge each other, but that was given to us by them. Exactly. No, I just had a conversation with my friends literally yesterday where um, one of my friends who is a an x-ray tech. And so she's around a lot of doctors like herself all around all the time. And one of her black friends, you know, said that when there are like black doctors in the room with cornrows, she has a hard time listening. What? Exactly. This was this was just yesterday. I kid you not. And like, so 
my friend, like as part of hearing that and recognizing like, hold on, wait a minute. Like my friend went to a predominantly black med school. So she was around many black people, um, doctors, as well as students becoming doctors uh, of different, different shades, different hairstyles and whatnot. So she's just like, hold on. Um, so what is right here? What is professional? Can someone actually go to work as a doctor and, and work cornrows? Is that okay? So like that's an additional internalized depression to to sit there and question like, wait a minute, right. should I push back against this statement against my my black peer who's also another doctor? Or is she right? Like that's a piece of internalized depression as well. So friend is hearing this and she's thinking something is wrong here. Like she shouldn't be thinking this, but also thinking, wait a minute, am I the wrong person? Right. Right. That's internalized depression. Catch yourself thinking a friend of mine was telling me she was on a flight and the pilot came out to speak and it was a black pilot and she's black and she felt herself doing an extra prayer. And she's like, wait, why am I doing an extra prayer? Yes. Like pilot, he had to be 10 times as good to get this position. Exactly. That's exactly what's going on. Conditioning we have that if it's black, it's less than or not as good as or not as Mm -hmm. desirable or not as valuable. And we do that in our own communities. Again, it's the gift that keeps on giving. (laughs) Unfortunately, true. And within that internalized oppression is also a question of ourselves. So when we start a brand new position at work, when we get into undergrad or graduate school, we had to apply, we had to get in, we struggled, we tried to make sure everything was right. But then is the question of the imposter syndrome. You sit there and you start to question, what if they figure out that I don't know what I know? Right, right. And that's a question because we feel as if people are looking at us and our black skin and our black hair and our black noses and butts and our, you know, our black way of, of thinking and questioning, okay, do I actually have a grasp on this? Can I be confident in my own knowledge? That's also a piece of eternalized oppression. We know that people so are going to question what we say. And even in questioning, so we had the situation recently with the celebration of Juneteenth and some companies served fried chicken and watermelon. And that started mm-hmm. a conversation. So then so some people will say, wow, that's racist that on Juneteenth they serve the employees lunch to sell, to commemorate and celebrate I guess the holiday. And then other people said, but that's, that's our cultural food if it was italian you know at italy day it'd be italian food or if it was you you go and get tacos so why are we so hypersensitive if that is from our culture it's also not from our culture too Mm -hmm. which black culture is fried chicken and watermelon right like who who said this is is that caribbean culture is that like Cameroonian American? That's the point. Like, it's like sitting there. So which black culture does this come from? And I get that Juneteenth is specifically for people who were enslaved within the U.S. So that is a specific black culture. But whose black culture are we really drawing from? And why is it fried chicken and watermelon? Where did that come from? I, I'm actually a pescatarian. I don't eat fried chicken. But let's say I love fried chicken. I don't eat it often. But here's the thing. Now, as black people, we don't want white people to see us eat fried chicken. No, no. I know people who will not eat a watermelon in front of right. It's like, it's just us. Everybody right. like in front of us. <laughs> yes, <laughs> watermelon is delicious. Right. But so, and that's the thing: is that us oppressing ourselves or being so attached to the outsider's impression of us that they gave to us that this is all we want? You know, it's so it, it's yes, a cycle that keeps going on and on. It is. There were advertisements that used, um, sorry for the, the negative um, racial term here, but the image of the pickaninny uh, and the image of um, the buckwheat character. 
another like mm-hmm. kid from Little Rascals, like was was another image like that, where basically they had like the little kids, sometimes adults too, like eating the watermelon. And, you know, and it was so such a great stereotype, great as in large, as in, right. in um and largely largely used, that it got ingrained even into people who don't even recognize that that is inside of their brains. Right. So, like people yeah, may right. they swear they've never seen an image like that. Mm-hmm. And it's like that doesn't mean that you have it. It could be stored in your unconscious and stored so far ingrained, it's unconscious. You cannot access that this is where this knowledge comes from. You can't even not access that you have this knowledge. That's how deep the unconscious can potentially be. And that's how impactful the unconscious can potentially be. And that's how we get these ideas ingrained in us. We don't know that they're there. We don't know that we're socialized into them. And then we we play into them both for the image that we have for ourselves, as well as the image where we that we think other people have of us. And, and I think the attachment of what we think other people think, but also what we know other people think based on the imagery and what is put out there about us. How do we combat that? How do we handle that? You know, they, they say what somebody else thinks about me is none of my business. However, you know, I'm trying to go into business and it matters what they think about me. What is the fine line of, well, you know, well, there's a lot of layers to this. One, I need to unlearn everything I was ever taught about myself in American Correct. education, right? Who am I? How do I embrace who I think I am or who I've decided to to be? How do I show up in the world? And then how do I manage that in a world where I'm still not the right color? I'm still not the right gender. I'm still not the right socioeconomic based on what's been set up as what is attainable or should be uh, aspirational. Honestly, with that, I would go back towards the advice that I give to people whenever I hear someone is suffering from internalized depression um, and specifically the imposter syndrome is that we have to figure out how to build up ourselves and our own confidence and realize that, that we struggled to get here. It's not that other people didn't. Other people is especially like thinking about the demographic of like of of poverty and finances. Yeah, there are many people out there of of many different racial and ethnic demographics that struggle to get to where they are. Sure, I would ignore that. Um, And also, but at the flip side of that, there are also people, um, especially if you're white, then your white privilege helped you to get to where you are, like whether where you are is financial or not. But in that, we have to recognize when we're in the room, we fought harder to get there the, the other people did because of the many different struggles that we had to get through just for race alone in order to get there. It's not that other people didn't struggle. We had to struggle differently. I love this um, cartoon. This um, just a, a single image of like a white guy who um, like on the left side of it, it's a white guy in a suit and he's about to like run a run a race and there's a goal. Uh, and then on the right side of the image, it's also the race and it's the exact same goal, but it's a black woman and she has a ball and chain like jackal to her foot there's like cactus and um hurdles and and boulders and all these other things and it's just like what it's the same goal is the tagline at the bottom it's just if you were able to get to that goal if you were able to get to the seat at the table you basically have struggled so hard to get there and then when you get there one of the things that we predominantly notice is that around that table there are a lot of people with very similar demographics and with those similar demographics comes cultural thoughts um, that we don't even recognize are there where we value certain things over other things where one thought leads to another thought so if you are there recognize the fact that your struggles gave you more information it gave you a different perspective it gave you the ability to think outside of the box and blow their minds 
but it's just, hard for them to throw blow each other's minds because they've been taught the same way. You right. got taught a little bit differently. So say what you need to say to value that you can bring even more to the table than the next person. So we need to be thinking about the fact that we got there too. But you know what? That's what's interesting. We know we had to work 25 times as hard. And then you talk about that image with all of the barriers and challenges to get to the same goal. And then you get to the same table and they'll say affirmative action. Oh, they just gave it to her because she's black. And you're mm-hmm. like, wait, actually, I'm better than you. I worked harder than you. And you're here because you're white. <laughs> and so who wins that battle of wits there? Because um, I think the thought is they didn't work. We didn't. Black people don't work hard. And so I actually had a person I consider a friend, but I'll, I'll say colleague for the sake of what I'm about to say. She doesn't believe that people should be able to go to school on scholarships because she paid her way through college. She's white. And she said, well, if everybody could get it, I said, well, what would be the problem if everybody could get it? I said, if education was accessible to everyone, how does that affect you negatively? Number one. And number two, everyone still is not going to matriculate. It still is about your ability and your talent. But if finances is the barrier, let's release that so we can have a better country and more more successful people they can pour into the communities. And, you know, and so what is this idea of if you get it, then then mine is not as important because you are able to get it too. Now, I don't even want this seat at the table because you... (laughs) (laughs) We all have something to bring to the table. We should recognize the fact that no matter who you are, chances are you have a marginalized demographic. It's actually extremely rare that someone has all the privileges possible. If you Google a privilege wheel, you can see so many different demographics that any one person can have and start to examine within yourself. Like, go ahead, you know, right now while you're listening to this, Google privilege wheel. It'll pop right on up and you'll see, okay, well, where am I on each of these privileges? Chances are you have at least one marginalized demographic. Think about that. Think about how how that has helped you to think in a different way than other people around the table. So, but also just really sit there and consider the fact that some, if you think in terms of probabilities, and demographics of, of like the, the frequencies of how many of this, how many of that. Uh, so just think about just the demographic of gender. We know that within the U.S. and around the globe, there are more women than there are men. Right. So when you're sitting at a seat at the table and there's a bunch of men, when you're looking at the people who control uh, countries, organizations and whatnot, we see a lot of men who really had a privileged position in order to get here, who actually benefited from affirmative action. Because if there are more women then there are men, then every single one of these tables should be a lot more even keeled in terms of that balance of women and men. But it's the same thing with white people being in the minority on the planet, but running everything. Yes, exactly. That's exactly (laughs) right. The idea of of people of color being the minority, like, no, 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 actually white people are the minority across, across the planet. Yes. And so somehow we're in this alternate universe (laughs) where where the people that are in the majority on the planet are forever asking the minority for permission. And the people who are the minority uh, get to tell the majority that we're the minorities, we're the people of color, we're the the others. And... um, and then they still are in absolute fear of and if the others had the rights or privileges we have, then we won't have our positioning. Some of that is true. <laughs> Some of that is true. But just stop and consider that all of us can have a seat at the table. I agree. All of us have like different fields that we're coming from. 
and considering within those fields, we should each have equal opportunity to get to where we can get to, which is that seat at the table, which is that upper title. We should have the, the chance to be able to get there completely based upon what's going on with merit. But if we just focused on merit, there would be a lot of structural oppression that is keeping a lot of people down. So we we should have a system that is based on merit. And we think in many instances, well, this person like got through the process. Like they got they they got that seat at the table because like a group of people chose this individual. But how many barriers were lowered for the privileged group and are still there for the marginalized group? So you have like, yeah, exactly. So what's going on there? Like, where is it that we can do much greater examination of our processes, of our policies, of our approaches to think outside of the box that we currently reside in and instead be thinking, okay, there's a reason why we don't have enough diversity. There's a reason why people come and don't want to stay, why we have a retention problem. So with that, let's stop and consider, okay, why that is. What is it that we can do to lower the barriers to ensure that we actually do have equal access, that people actually do get here on merit? So you are someone that people reach out to based on your expertise and fields of research and study when the hot terms are diversity, equity, and inclusion. And when you talk about everybody needs to have a seat at the table, I feel like the people who aren't at the table or are pushed from the table are the ones that saying, we're not saying you shouldn't be there, but we should be there too. I have spoken on panels where I've pointed out when you invite a black person or you hire a diversity and inclusion manager, and that is the black person, or you invite black people to the table so you can hear black voices. Um, I often remind them, black people probably can tell you more about white people. than white people can tell you because we are in a unique space that we have to engage and interact with everyone whereas we have a unique experience that is more um, totality of, of the true global experience where some people who might be of privilege who don't have to interact with anybody that doesn't look like them to reach their, their spot at the table. Which is another privilege. Yet another privilege. So I get offended when I'm invited as the black person and they only talk to me about black stuff. I'm like, no, wait, I got something to say about what y'all was talking about because yes, exactly. how that works too. Right. We we need to do a, a better job. Um, we as, as a society need to do a better job of remembering to reach out to that that black person, that person of color, that 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 whoever, whatever demographic we're thinking about for more than just to speak about being a member of our demographic. Right. We shouldn't just reach out to people who are like not able bodied, who are disabled, you know, because of their disability. Chances are they have a lot more to talk about as well, because being a member of a marginalized demographic is a piece of who we are. It is not the totality of who I am. So like Google me, um, you'll actually find me on a, on a panel talking about superheroes, taking it away from the men on the panel. But if you look at me, you're not thinking, oh, that black woman like knows entirely too much about superheroes. Right. Right. What does she know? Exactly. No, like, because that's not part of my stereotype. Mm -hmm. So like, so it's about reaching out to people and thinking like there are other ways to diversify and there are ways for us to be thinking outside of this box 
And the more people we have around us that are not members of our own demographic boxes, the greater chance we have to move forward in a way that grabs more attention, that grabs more dollars, that grabs like the goal that we're actually reaching for. The more people that are of similar demographics, the more likely we've had similar socialization or likely to think in a similar way and to miss the mark that we're trying to reach. It is through those heterogeneous groups that we have a greater chance of moving forward in the way that we want to be able to move forward. I will say personally, when you mentioned being on the panel and taking over by superheroes, there are a few moments as sweet as a black woman that when you get to have your little black girl magic moment. Yes. And I bet you didn't know I knew that. <laughs> I used to be a television news anchor and I was the black one on the show. And it would be so many different points of reference that I had just because I consumed so much of the world. And it might be that some of my blonde, blue-eyed colleagues wouldn't know or wouldn't have the experience. And I would say, oh yeah, I did that once. Or, oh yeah, I remember once. And I would say, oh, I'll put the picture on Facebook so you guys can go see it. And my mom would text me. She was like, go on, little black girl. <laughs> <laughs> go on. It, they didn't like that I was a smart aleck and she is a know-it-all and she thinks she knows everything and I'm like yeah, yeah. like we're getting out of our lane and like no this is my lane too yeah they don't they did not appreciate that I felt so confident in taking up the space I was taking up and that I didn't shrink and so I know when we find ourselves in those spaces sometimes um when we're talking about internalized oppression the imposter syndrome you know never read the comments, but hearing the comments of an entire country in your history books, it takes a special kind of prayer to leave the house and say, oh, I'm going to go ahead and show them about this. Because you know you're going to be beaten down along the way. What can what can someone do based on your personal experience? Because you've had to do it to have your education, to have your positioning, to be on the board you're on, to speak on the topics you speak on, to be invited and in the room, in the room when it happens in so many spaces. How can we give ourselves not only permission, but the clarity and the confidence to show up and and be in those spaces. A lot of that really does come down to self-care. Okay. And remembering exactly what Audre Lord said about self-care being an act of political warfare, because when we get in those spaces, we get questioned. In order for us to be able to say what we want to say, we have to have our receipts. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We have to have the confidence within ourselves to keep going. And the only way we're going to have that is, of course, by bolstering each other, but also by doing a good job of taking care of ourselves. So that's sitting there actually um, in my own like feeling of the imposter effect. I, I went to a meditation app and started like gathering up all of the different meditations that speak to the imposter effect. And they're mostly about building confidence within yourself to know that you can you can own your day and that you can consider that you are not just enough, but you are amazing. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's what we have to that's the way that we get our greater confidence in those those times, especially when we're surrounded by a bunch of naysayers, a bunch of people who are going to co-opt what we say instead of recognizing that no, that that one person of color on the table, that person said it first and it got dismissed. But then somehow through some like sleeper effect, everyone like completely forgot the person of color around the table said that. And then, you know, someone else, you know, says it. Someone it's a bright idea. Yeah. Is that what it's a, and then it's suddenly like, oh, you know what? That well, is they idea. Because you had cornrows. Yes. They couldn't hear you. Exactly. (laughs) So that's where when we hear that as a person, no matter what your demographics are around the table, we have to amplify. Mm -hmm. It's like so a person said something great. Say just like 
you know, individual X said, this is a, a way moving forward. This is something else we have to think about. This is something else that we need to unpack. And so we do have to do a better job of amplifying each other, but we also have to do more to amplify ourselves because who else is going to do it? That is wonderful. We always end each episode with an action item. We encourage our listeners that once we he- once they hear a conversation, think, okay, how can I hashtag be the change? How can I mm-hmm. change my space in the world, my street, my community, my block? I think that's a great piece. If you have something else to add, I would encourage you and we'd love to hear it. But when you talk about self-care and, and telling yourself you're more than enough, it really, you know, what it made me think about is how much we consume in the form of entertainment that's telling us we're not. We're and not. That is our capitalistic careful. culture. Yeah. Yes. Capitalism has taught us you are not enough. My product will make you enough. Purchase my thing. You and know, they, they what? You never listen to commercials because of that. <laughs> yes, and exactly. You be new and improved. Your clothes aren't white enough. Your teeth aren't white enough. You're not skinny enough. Your car isn't fast enough. You're everything. You are not yes. enough. <laughs> and going to internalize depression, your hair isn't straight enough, your skin isn't light enough, your eyes aren't light enough, you aren't skinny enough, like your heels aren't high enough. That's where we need to stop and push back against those messages and recognize like, no, I am amazing the way that I am. Mm-hmm. I can choose to self-reflect and work on something within myself. But if we're going to towards positive psychology, where instead of focusing on what's wrong with me, positive psychology focuses on what is it that I like? Um, what is it that are my my strengths and my values? What, what is it that I'm good at? And using that instead to focus on how is it that I could improve if That is what you want to focus on. So that's where if you positive psychology says, if we have an opportunity to focus on our top character strengths frequently, that's where we find happiness. That's where we find confidence. That's where we find that greater sense of self. And it's something that we have to try to engage in every day, if possible. I love it. It's important as, as, if it's a matter of reading affirmations in the mirror to yourself, affirming the highest opinion of yourself before you go out into the world and, and are told that that is not true. So hashtag be the change. Uh, listeners, share some of your self-care methods. Share some of your ways that you affirm yourself before you go out into this crazy mixed up world. Dr. Eden Renee Hayes, I I always put people on the spot at the end of the show because I hope that you've enjoyed this conversation. But I say, so now that you've been on the show, we will call you again. And we know your number. We know your email. (laughs) Happy to do it. This was tons of fun. I thank you for inviting me. I thank you for having this really great time to just sit there and and geek out about what I do. This like I would totally welcome another call and another opportunity to do this again. This this was tons of fun. Well, I can promise you that call is coming. (laughs) (laughs) I will look forward to it then. Thank you so much guys for listening. And until next episode, make sure you take care of yourselves and we'll see you next time on the history of being black. Take care. Take care. The History of Being Black podcast is hosted and produced by Eunice Elliott, edited by Ken Johnson, executive producers Ken Johnson. Find the History of Being Black podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcast. The History of Being Black podcast is a Mean Old Lion production.
You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply.